those of you especially as well who are joining us online. Uh, perhaps for the first year, um, those who are away on holidays are able to join us. And I know that there's one or two, even interstate, um, who are still with us online, even though you can't be with us in person. So it's really wonderful to have you joining us as we start uh, this new series in the book of Jonah. Um, now, can I encourage you, if you haven't already, to have your Bibles there with you uh, open at chapter one of Jonah um, on the church Bibles. And if you don't have one, you can always grab one on the table at the back there or in the foyer. Um, not going to worry me if you sneak off and grab one now uh, as we get stuck into it. Uh, Jonah chapter one, and you'll find it on page 928. Uh, and it'll be very helpful to have the passage there in front of you uh, as we work through it together. Uh, and there's an outline of what we're looking at together this morning as well on your service sheets. Well, the book of Jonah is a book that's always engaged people's imaginations in one way or another. Not only as a bit of a moralistic kid story, uh, the, the story of Jonah and the giant fish is in just about every kind of kid's Bible you could ever imagine, uh, isn't it? You, you can't imagine a kid's Bible without at least the first half of the story of Jonah being included in there somewhere. But it's actually a story that's captured the imaginations of many people well beyond the scope of the church itself. Um, this, I've got up on the screen here a series of Israeli postage stamps. Uh, the, the nation of Israel issued these postage stamps illustrating different scenes or different aspects of the story of Jonah as a national stamp, despite the fact, as we'll see today and in coming weeks, the story of Jonah is one that is written to rebuke the religious pride and prejudice of God's own people, the Jewish people. Nonetheless, it's so captured their imaginations that they've got a series of postage stamps commemorating the story. Uh, another slide up here, I've got two that I'll show you one after the other. This is the first one. These are carvings from the top of Christian burial boxes. Uh, and it wasn't uncommon in the early church for Christians to carve these scenes from the story of Jonah into the top of their burial boxes. This first one there, you might be able to just make out at the bottom of the screen a Jonah being fed over the side of the boat uh, and into the waiting mouth of looks, what looks like less a fish, a giant fish, and more some kind of sea creature. And then if we flick to the next slide, um, you might be able to just make out at the bottom of that carving, you can see that sea monster again and a little Jonah being vomited out of the mouth of this giant sea creature and onto the shore. And Christians would carve these images from the book of Jonah onto their burial uh, coffins or boxes as a way of reflecting the story of Jesus' own resurrection. There was something that Christians saw in this story of Jonah that related to Jesus and his, his going down, his death, and his rising again to new life. It's a story that has captured the imaginations of countless people uh, throughout the history of the church. It's a book, though, that's the message of which has often been twisted and distorted as well. People have often been uncomfortable, really, with the biting and sharp-edged message that was directed against God's people in the telling of this story. Uh, the Christian children's books, you might have noticed this. Uh, if you haven't noticed it before, maybe go home today and open up whichever kids' Bibles you have at home and see how much of the story of Jonah they tell. Because often the story finishes halfway through as uh, Jonah is vomited onto the shore and goes ahead and does exactly what God had commanded him to do. 
The Jewish tradition was also a little bit uncomfortable with this story of Jonah. And some rabbis suggested that Jonah's mission to go and proclaim a message to the pagans actually isn't the real story of Jonah. The real story of Jonah is what Jonah did when the fish swallowed him up and took him down to the underworld and that Jonah had some other kind of spiritual uh, message and journey to fulfill, some mission to fulfill down in the dead, the place of the dead. And so they came up with all these alternate stories about what the message of Jonah was actually about. Uh, In Islam, the story of Jonah is recycled uh, in the scriptures, the scriptures uh, of Islam, the Quran. And in the Quran, Jonah is made out to be a good Arabic prophet, someone, a prophet who does exactly what God tells him to do in exactly the way that God told him to do it. It seems that we're often not very comfortable with how the Bible actually tells the story of Jonah, and so we find other ways to tweak it so it's more to our liking. The story of Jonah has a biting, satirical edge to it that people have often attempted to tone down. And you could say that Jonah employs a whole lot of the same kind of irony and satire that you might remember we saw in the book of Daniel, except in Daniel where the irony and the satire was directed against the enemies of God's people. In the book of Jonah, the irony and the satire is actually directed against God's own people themselves. Uh, Let's have a look at how our story begins, how the account of Jonah begins. Uh, I'll read for us just the opening verses from chapter 1, verses 1 and 2 is where we'll begin. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. Nineveh seems to have been the capital city of Assyria at the time in which this account is written. In fact, just 20 years or so after Jonah's own lifetime, Assyria was responsible for just about all but destroying the nation of Israel. And it wasn't only Israel who had a bit of a tense relationship with this city of Nineveh and the whole nation of Assyria. God himself wasn't on good terms with this pagan nation. We read there in verse 2 that Nineveh's wickedness has come up before God. It's kind of like a way of saying that Nineveh has gotten in his face. The stench of Nineveh has gotten up his nose, so to speak. In fact, it's exactly the same words that are used to describe the way in which God speaks of Sodom and Gomorrah just before he destroyed them with fire and brimstone from the heavens, if you remember that account, that story of Sodom and Gomorrah from the Old Testament, Genesis. Jonah, we read here, is being called to go and announce God's coming judgment upon this nation that has gotten up his nose, so to speak. Now, you might assume there's going to be nothing better than getting to to deliver bad news to your arch rivals, than being able to say to your enemies, I told you so, you've got it coming. Therefore, it should come as a bit of a surprise to us when we read how it is that Jonah actually does respond to receiving this message or this call from God. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 3. 
Having received the call from God, we read in verse 3, but Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa, where he had found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Twice we're told in just that one verse that Jonah decides to flee from God. In what sense does Jonah imagine he can actually flee from God? Surely it's not as if Jonah thinks he can find some place on earth where God doesn't have eyes, where God can't see what is happening. In fact, if you glance down to verse 9, a little bit later in the story, Jonah himself, speaking to these pagan sailors, confesses that he worships the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Jonah himself recognises that God is the God of all the earth. So it can't be that Jonah imagines he can somehow escape God's notice by jumping on this ship to Tarshish. Literally, the passage says that Jonah flees from God's presence. God's presence in the Old Testament is a way of describing where the priests would serve God. The priests would go into the Lord's presence, into God's presence, in order to do his bidding, to do his service. And I think what we're reading here from Jonah is he's fleeing, he's aiming to flee far enough that he will be of no use in God's service. He's trying to flee somewhere where God's service will no longer have a hold upon him any longer. And I think that explains why Jonah heads to Tarshish. You can see it on the map just above us. Tarshish is in the opposite direction to the city of Nineveh, the city that God had called him to go and serve in. Jonah jumps on a ship headed for the opposite direction. Why was it? Why was it that Jonah was so keen to avoid serving God? Why was it that Jonah was so keen to avoid announcing God's judgment upon these people who are his arch enemies? I can imagine for the many of us, we'd imagine to do exactly the same thing. We would have no interest in going out into the world in order to announce God's coming destruction upon others. But my suspicion is that Jonah's desire to avoid preaching this message had nothing to do with feeling awkward about God's judgment or being anxious about being rejected. In fact, there's only one other place in the Old Testament where Jonah is mentioned, where his name is mentioned. But I think this other passage helps us better understand Jonah's actions. Uh, In 2 Kings chapter 14, we read that Jonah was a prophet who preached a message that the borders of Israel, that God's people, the nation of God's people, was going to expand, was going to grow, was going to defeat God's enemies and get larger and larger. You could say that Jonah was a prophet who preached a message, make Israel great again. That was the vibe of Jonah's preaching life. He was a prophet who preached the expansion, the victory, the glory of Israel. It's always been a pretty popular slogan to proclaim. Make your own, your own people, your own nation great again. And that's the kind of message that we find Jonah preaching in 2 Kings, chapter 14. 
Jonah, however, suspects that God isn't on the same page as him. I'm going to sneak ahead a little bit. We're going to get a sneak preview about how this story ends. With your Bibles there, you might look to look ahead to chapter 3, verse 10. And I'll read a little bit of a preview, a little bit of a sneak peek from the end, uh, towards the end of uh, the story of Jonah. So this is after Jonah has gone to the city. Bit of a spoiler alert. Um, there's plenty still to discover, so I don't mind ruining a few surprises if the story's new to you. But Jonah preaches to Nineveh that God is going to judge them and the city repents. And this is how Jonah responds later on. Chapter 3, verse 10. When God saw that they, uh, what they did, what the city did, and how they turned from their evil ways, God relented and did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. But to Jonah, this seemed very wrong, and he became angry. He prayed to the Lord, Isn't this what I said, Lord, when I was still at home? This is what I tried to forestall by fleeing to Tarshish. I knew that you are a gracious and compassionate God, slow to anger and abounding in love, a God who relents from sending calamity. Now, Lord, take my life, for it's better for me to die than to live. The reason that Jonah fled in the opposite direction, he tells us here at the end of the story, is because he had a sense that God wasn't going to carry through with the judgment that he called Jonah to go ahead and preach to the city. The book of Jonah as a whole is written to satirise and to mock, to poke fun at those who are so obsessed with God's goodness towards them that they can't imagine God showing that same mercy to anyone else. That's what the book of Jonah is written. It's written to mock those who are so caught up in this picture of how God is good to them that they lose sight of God's intention to show that kindness to others as well, even their own enemies. We're going to return and continue to consider these themes in the coming weeks. But for today, just notice this, that what most offended Jonah was that God would ask him to play a part in bringing mercy to those who didn't deserve it. Notice that Jonah didn't even have to preach a message of mercy. Right? He was just called to go and preach, God's going to judge you. That's all he had to do. But he couldn't even bear to do that, knowing that God might use his message to bring repentance and mercy to a people who had turned against God. And so, Jonah does what most of us are pretty good at doing. Jonah practices avoidance. Selective hearing. He went down to Joppa, our passage tells us, he goes down into the lowest parts of a ship and he settles himself down into the coma of a deep, deep sleep. Uh, Have a look with me at verse 4. Verse 4. As Jonah is on the ship, fleeing to Tarshish, we read, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea, and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid and cried out, each to his own God, and they threw cargo into the sea to lighten the ship. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. 
In sending the storm, God is attempting to get Jonah's attention. But Jonah is doing the equivalent of going down into the abasement, turning his iPod up to full ball and putting his head under the pillow. He is having none of it. You can probably remember occasions in which you came up with your own strategies to try and be avoidant. Uh, When your parents were calling you to do something, I can remember an occasion or two myself. You know, what is actually ironic and darkly humorous, this is kind of dark humour here, Jonah the prophet is supposed to be going to preach God's word to the pagans, but instead it's actually the pagans who end up trying to get Jonah to listen to God's word. It's completely back to front. Have a look with me at verse 6, where the captain basically comes to Jonah and says, "Uh, Jonah, I I think God's trying to get our attention. Uh, Verse 6, the captain went to Jonah and said, how can you sleep? Get up and call on your God. Maybe he will take notice of us so that we will not perish. And then in verse 7, the whole crew is trying to find out what God is trying to tell them. Uh, Verse 7, then the sailors said to each other, come, let us cast lots to find out who is responsible for this calamity. They cast lots and the lot fell on Jonah. So they asked him, tell us who is responsible for making all this trouble for us. What kind of work do you do? Where do you come from? What is your country? From what people are you? And he answered, I'm a Hebrew and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. And the, and the sailors are terrified at us. By casting lots, they identified Jonah as the one. Jonah's disobedience is what has caused this storm. And the pagans declare, well, then let's listen to God. Let's pay attention to what he's trying to tell us. What should we do? And Jonah's response is given in verse 10. Verse 10, on hearing that Jonah worshipped or served the God of the oceans, the seas and the land, we read, this terrified them and they asked, what have you done? They knew he was running away from the Lord because he had already told them so. The sea was getting rougher and rougher, so they asked him, what should we do to you to make the sea calm down for us? The pagans are trying desperately to get the prophet to listen to God's word. It's completely upside down and back to front. The pagans are doing the preaching. Jonah is sticking his head under a metaphorical pillow. And the writer of the story is deliberately making a mockery out of Jonah's status here as a so-called prophet of the Most High. I wonder if you noticed, as the story was being read to us earlier this morning, how it is that Jonah replies when the pagans ask him what they should do about this terrible situation that they're in. Did you notice how Jonah had replied to them? Have a look at verse 12. I used to think that this was signalling a bit of a change in Jonah's attitude when I was a kid, when I read this passage. I'm not so sure now. Verse 12. Pick me up and throw me into the sea, Jonah replied, and it will become calm. I know that it is my fault that this great storm has come upon you. Instead, the men did their best to row back to land, but they could not, for the sea grew even wilder than before. Then they cried out to the Lord, Please, Lord, do not let us die for taking this man's life. Do not hold us accountable for killing an innocent man for you, Lord, have done as you pleased. 
Then they took Jonah and threw him overboard, and the raging sea grew calm. At this the men greatly feared the Lord, and they offered sacrifices to the Lord and made vows to him. What do you reckon? Is, is Jonah being noble here? Is Jonah, Jonah being, you know, selfless? Is it a selfless sacrifice for Jonah to say, look, just save yourselves, throw me overboard and, and, and you guys will be saved, everything will go well. Is Jonah finally growing up and taking responsibility for his former disobedience at this point? It might look a little bit as if Jonah has changed his mind, but I don't actually think that that's the case. Jonah could have prayed like the pagans prayed to their gods. But Jonah doesn't think to pray. What's he going to pray? He could have repented and said, okay, let's turn around and go back to Nineveh just as God had commanded me to. That's what the pagans had tried to do, rowing back against the storm. But Jonah doesn't think to suggest that. But instead, Jonah would rather die than have to proclaim anything that might lead to the pagans of Nineveh repenting and receiving God's mercy. Jonah would rather die. And so he says in verse 12, chuck me into the sea. That's Jonah's solution to the problem. Kill me, throw me overboard and just let me die here and now. Let's just be done with it. Jonah's attitude hasn't changed a bit. He would rather die than play any part in actions that would lead to the pagan nation of Assyria, of the Ninevites, of turning back to God. The call to display, to proclaim mercy towards others can be hard and galling sometimes, can't it? As much as we don't like to admit it, I reckon there is likely something of Jonah's heart slumbering within each of us below deck. Just think for a moment of those perhaps who have wronged us in the past and express no remorse for having done so. Where does our own heart of mercy lie towards them? Or those who perhaps are ungrateful or unresponsive to the mercy that we've ventured to show them? Or those who have perhaps mocked or despised God's mercy that we've risked speaking about with them? in the hope that they would come to know it too. In such situations, it's often easier simply to practice avoidance than to offer God's mercy and be rebuffed by it or to feel as if the injustice that we had suffered under had just been swept under the carpet and never paid attention to anymore. Just to tap out and disappear below deck as Jonah had done. Jonah, an Israelite, a prophet of the Most High God, one whose only calling was to proclaim God's word. He preferred death in the depths of the sea than, rather than risking to promote God's mercy to those who he feels just didn't deserve it. That's in stark contrast, isn't it, to another Israelite, one who actively chose death, death upon a tree, in order that God's mercy might be declared to those who didn't deserve it, in order that God's mercy might be offered to those who were his enemies. To contrast Jonah's attitude towards God's mercy with Jesus. Remember what Jesus prayed from the cross itself, Father, forgive them. 
In Jonah and Jesus, we see two very different Israelites who both stood before God, supposedly doing His will. Jonah, who fled. The Lord Jesus, who willingly chose death so that those who didn't deserve God's mercy might receive it at His cost. While Jonah doubles down, unwilling to even risk God displaying mercy towards his sworn enemies, Jesus willingly descends to the depths of death so that we might feel the light of God's mercy shining upon us. The crazy thing, the the bitterly ironic thing, I wonder if you noticed this as we were reading the story, right there towards the end of chapter 1, is that the very mercy and patience that Jonah resents God displaying towards Nineveh is the very same mercy that God graciously ends up showing to the stubborn and hard-hearted prophet Jonah himself. Have a look with me at verse 17, right towards the end of our passage. Um, After Jonah has been thrown overboard and sunk down into the depths, we read verse 17. Now the Lord provided a huge fish to swallow Jonah, and Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. We'll come back and reflect a little bit more on this strange occurrence at the start of next week when we look at chapter 2 of the book of Jonah. But the mercy that Jonah obstinately resists, even facilitating, is the very mercy that ends up preserving Jonah himself in the depths, in the heart of the sea. And there's a real tragic irony here, isn't there? A willful pig-headedness to Jonah that we'll discover more of in the coming weeks. One who benefits from God's mercy, even as he stubbornly refuses to proclaim it or recognise it for others. Now, while we haven't received a call like the prophet Jonah, for the starters, Jonah's call was to go and preach God's judgment upon others, 30 days and you guys are all going to be gone. That's not our call. That's not God's calling for us. And yet it is a little bit perverse, isn't it? Don't we share in something of the perversity of Jonah that the mercy that God has shown towards us is so often rather disconnected from our own hearts towards others. That the mercy that God has shown us often really doesn't engage our own hearts with respect to others, particularly others who have wronged us. And yet it should. I'm going to pop up on the screen here a verse from the book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. The Apostle Peter wrote these words to Christian believers. He wrote, But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. You had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Our calling to be God's people, our calling in receiving God's mercy is that we might embody and reflect it in our dealings with others as well. Uh, The vision of Summerhill Church that 
uh, we'll be referring to a little bit more over the course of this January. We'll be un unpacking it and deliberately thinking through it a little bit more over this coming month. But this vision is, you might have seen it written up before, is that as a community, we might see and be people who are transformed by Jesus. People who not only have received God's mercy in the Lord Jesus, but who are also transformed by having received it, so that we begin to increasingly willingly embody and proclaim it towards others as well. Now, later on in this January, we're actually going to hear from uh, several brothers and sisters here at church. They're going to pop up the front and share with us some of the different ways in which their own experience of God's mercy has shaped their dealings with others. Opportunities that as they've come to grasp God's mercy towards them, they've begun to see opportunities to share that mercy in the way in which they speak about God in their dealing with others who don't know him. So we're going to spend some time over the course of January reflecting on what it might look like to not only receive that mercy from God, but to be transformed by it ourselves in our dealing with others. And this book of Jonah is a book that is written to shake awake those of us who, like Jonah, take for granted God's mercy towards us, but who remain dead to the world when it comes to embracing God's merciful heart towards others. Yet, friends, even when, even when our own hearts remain unmoved by God's mercy, Mercy is what God continues to show to us on a day-by-day -day basis. Mercy is what God continues to pursue us with. That's what God did with Jonah, wasn't it? God's mercy pursued Jonah, even when Jonah wasn't interested in having a bar of it, even for himself, let alone for the Ninevites. God relentlessly chases us with mercy through all of our stubbornness and our disobedience. So that ultimately, whether we like it or not, the beauty of his merciful character might come to be seen and known by others as well. And as we'll see throughout the book of Jonah, whether we despise God's mercy towards us or whether we embrace it, God will act to make that mercy of his known to people other than just those who are gathered here this Sunday morning. And like it or not, he will use us in order to make that grace and that mercy known. How about we pray and ask that God will begin to do that work within us so that rather than resisting it, we might begin to delight and embrace in it so that others might come to share with it, uh, us with it. Let's pray. <clears throat> Our dearest Father, we... We are aware of your mercy and your grace towards us. Every time we stop and pause to reflect on it, we know, Father, that we depend on your ongoing, sustained mercy and grace. And yet so, Father, yet so often, Father, we, we respond in avoidance towards that character of yours. Perhaps, Father, sometimes we even turn away from appreciating it ourselves. Father, we often turn away and resist showing it towards, displaying it towards or sharing about it with others, particularly others who we feel have grieved and wronged us. And yet, Father, we do ask that your mercy wouldn't slack, 
that your mercy wouldn't cease doing its work in us, that even where we turn away, you might overwhelm us with your mercy so that through and in us, that grace and kindness that you've shown in the Lord Jesus might overflow to the knowledge of others around about us as well. So that they might turn their own lips to praise and honour you, even as we'll see next week, the pagans have done with Jonah. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Friends, we're going to turn and sing together uh, with our masks as well, of course, before we come to celebrate the Lord's Supper together in a moment.